is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. The vaccine and kids, should they be given shots? Are they safe? The answer now seems to be closer to yes. Clinical trial results of Pfizer's vaccine showed its efficacy 100%. And it's well tolerated in kids between 12 and 15. So we'll get into what that means going forward. Oh, speaking of kids, there are some parents who don't want them to get the vaccine no matter what. But why? Airlines getting back to normal. We will tell you how. And the virus, it is rampant all over Brazil. We'll get into how bad the situation is there and what it means for us here. But again, kids in the vaccines. Dr. William Schaffner, professor of preventative medicine, infectious diseases, Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. So, doctor, the results from these trials, they look pretty good. It does. It really does. They've done their studies down now in children age 12 to 18, and it looks, well, they say it's 100% effective in preventing serious disease. And actually, we anticipated something along those lines because these are stunningly effective vaccines in older persons whose immune systems may already start to be waning. And so we anticipated that young people would respond very well to these vaccines. Good news. It will help make starting school, we hope, this fall safer. Now, it hasn't gotten approved yet by the FDA, but we have our fingers crossed. Does it change the calculus at all when it comes to the FDA that, you know, this is already in a whole bunch of the population. We're opening the doors for so many people that they can go faster with an approval for the teens. Or is it the same thing? We got to comb through all these 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 books of paperwork. Oh, they have to examine the data meticulously. But. It is a little bit easier because we've had all this information on older adults, and now we can bridge, as we say, to information in teenagers. And beyond that, the studies are continuing to children in grade school and even younger. So those evaluations will go more quickly, but still very critically. So uh, I'm going to jump the the gun a little bit here, doctor, because in our next segment, we're going to be talking about parents who are perhaps reluctant to have their children vaccinated. Of course, for older folks, it's their own decision. If it's a minor, it's really up to the parent. Right. Uh, Can you address uh, for a moment parents who might not want to have their child given a vaccine for covid? A little bit hard for me to imagine, but yes, first of all, it benefits the child. Children, particularly older adolescents, are just kind of like young adults. Not only can they transmit these infections, but they can get really quite sick from them. Not as frequently as old adults, but nonetheless they can. And increasingly, we're seeing young adults in intensive care units with this disease. So it protects the child. And furthermore, it will help prevent transmission. It will further provide protection for everyone else in the family, everyone else in the community, if all are vaccinated. That will go a long way to, as we say, flattening the curve, making it harder for this virus to move from one person to another. Dr. William Schaffner, Professor of Preventive Medicine, Infectious Diseases, Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. 
Kids could be eligible in the U.S. in a few months for the vaccine, but that doesn't mean they'll all be getting shots. Yeah, what if mom or dad is skeptical? With us is Jessica Kalarko, sociologist at Indiana University, conducted surveys of dozens of parents who were hesitant or just refusing to allow their kids to be vaccinated. So, Jessica, what are some of the reasons these parents are giving? What it seems to be, what we seem to be finding here, we did a survey across the country of about 2,000 parents, uh, and we found that these rates of skepticism seem to be higher for the COVID vaccine than with other vaccines in the past, and that they're particularly high among mothers. About a third of moms say that they are very unlikely or somewhat unlikely to vaccinate their children, um, compared to only about 17% of dads. And it's even higher than that among white Republican moms. 46% of them said that they're either very unlikely or somewhat unlikely to vaccinate their kids. And we dug into this with interviews. We interviewed 64 moms from a, a politically diverse backgrounds and socioeconomically and racially diverse backgrounds to try to understand where is this coming from? And what we found in those interviews was that the moms who are uh, most reluctant to get their kids vaccinated perceive themselves as more able to control the risks of COVID uh, through healthy diet, through keeping their kids at home, through uh, vitamins, uh, then through, uh, then they feel like they can actually, they don't feel like they can control the risks of the vaccine itself. They worry about side effects and they feel like those side effects are uh, random in that they can't take steps to help keep their kids safe the way that they can uh, with COVID-19 with, with COVID itself. And so we link this to the idea that mothers in particular face strong pressures from society as a whole to, to watch out for potential risks to their children's health um, and face strong pressures to, to manage those risks um, and to take steps to keep their children safe. And so really that the, the increased hesitancy and, and concerns among moms seem to be reflecting the pressures that we put on moms to help their kids avoid any possible risk to their health. And, and troublesome that it is on the moms, because isn't it moms by and large that make a lot of the health decisions for the family as a whole? Exactly. Research has shown consistently that moms are family health managers. They're the ones who schedule the pediatrician's appointments. They're the ones who make decisions about whether the family gets vaccinated. And certainly that was something we heard in our interviews as well. I talked to one mom who joked that her husband likes to say that he wears the pants in the family, but she decides which ones he wears. Um, and she was using that to get at the idea that if, if she didn't get a vaccine, he wasn't going to get one either. Um, and, and so certainly moms are, are key decision makers um, around these kinds of health decisions. And so if moms are the ones who are particularly concerned concerned or particularly reluctant to get their kids vaccinated, the rest of the family will probably fall in line. Well, and as you know, I'm sure infectious disease uh, folks are saying that if we ever hope to have, you know, herd immunity in this country, any country, I suppose, uh, for the coronavirus, you're, you know, we're going to have to have uh, a lot of children vaccinated as well, because while they may not often get very ill, they can, especially as they get a little bit older, can spread it to, to those who are not vaccinated. So I'm wondering if in the course of your uh, polling and research, have you been able to sort of distill from this what the proper messaging might need to be to convince mothers to have their children vaccinated against COVID? I mean, I think certainly we need to we need to be honest with mothers that there are risks, some risks with vaccines. I think if we don't openly acknowledge those risks, then mothers will, will, will be even more concerned that something is being hidden from them. At the same time, I think there is a need to push back against the misinformation and disinformation um, that's being spread. And, and I think there's also an importance of not uh, blaming mothers for being susceptible to that misinformation or disinformation because of the expectations that society puts on them uh, to look out for possible risks 
next to their kids' health. And so I think we almost need to flip the conversation and say, how do we better support families and especially mothers in taking care of their children's health by investing in health as as a, a, a public as a public and collective responsibility? I mean, that's really what vaccines are all about, as opposed to um, blaming mothers if their kids get sick or if their kids have behavior problems, um, treating that as an opportunity to support mothers and families um, instead. Professor Jessica Calarco, sociologist, Indiana University, conducting interviews and research on vaccine-hesitant parents. Airlines are slowly getting back to normal operations. Delta, well, Delta's going to be selling those middle seats again. The one good thing that was left is now gone. And uh, the cheap tickets also, they're getting more expensive. Peter Greenberg, KNX travel editor with CBS News, also contributing editor for Michelin Travel. So, Peter, for Delta, it was just a matter of time, right? There's a reason why there were middle seats on the plane to begin with. I hate to tell you what that reason was. It was to sell them. <laughs> to put people and, in them. Yeah. And, you know, when, when Delta first did this, it made a lot of sense because they were only flying at about 22% load factor. It was a great marketing opportunity for them to let people realize they, at a time when they were very you know nervous about flying, those people who were in the air, that they knew that no matter what flight they took on Delta, unless they were flying with a significant other or a family member, uh, that middle seat was going to be blocked. And they did that. Uh, from almost the beginning up until the end of next month. And they they basically hinted they were going to get rid of it. And today they announced they were. So as of May 1st, uh, they re- readjusted their computer systems and their reservation systems. And they'll now be selling 100% of every available seat on all of their flights. It doesn't mean they're going to fill the planes, but they now right. have the ability to fill it. But, you know, I, I wonder, Peter, how does an airline, anyone really, how do they kind of reverse engineer the messaging? Because I remember when, when Delta started doing this, and, and maybe we even talked about it on the show here. You know, they were making a big deal that this was for the safety of their passengers and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, here we are all these months later. The infection rate is actually going up in many states in the country. Uh, we don't have that many people yet vaccinated. We certainly don't have herd immunity. So how do they kind of go from we're doing this for the safety of our passengers to, okay, now we just got to make money, folks? Well, you know, it was very easy to say they were doing it for the safety of their passengers when there was nobody on the plane to begin with. Uh, here's a situation where, let's be honest, uh, social distancing and airplane cabins are truly mutually exclusive. You cannot widen the cabin. And even with that center seat blocked, the distance between you and the window seat and me and the aisle seat is still only two and a half feet, not six. And the absolute worst situation, of course, is the distance between you and the guy sitting behind you, which is only 14 inches away, and he sneezes. So that's not really the issue here. The issue is that the air circulation systems on the plane have always been excellent whether it's Delta, United, American, Southwest, you name it. Uh, They take out 99.4% of all the particulates and the bacteria. And there have not been any reported issues that I know of, of people contracting, uh, you know, the COVID-19 from their experience on the plane, middle seat blocked or otherwise. But now let's take a look at some of the numbers. Uh, American Airlines was reporting last week an 80% load factor system-wide domestically. Uh, The TSA reported 18 straight days of, of basically processing more than 1 million passengers a day. We haven't seen that since February of 2020, uh, even though the normal average would be 2.7 million, a million a day for 18 days, considering what we've gone through for the last year is still pretty impressive. And American Airlines is taking all their parked planes and bringing them back into service. So they're looking at their advanced projections and they're looking at their forward-looking bookings and they're realizing that we're about to have a surge 
in leisure travel to domestic U.S. uh, destinations. And that brings us to our ticket prices, which are not as low as they used to be. No, they're not. Uh, I'll give you a a good example. Uh, Three weeks ago, the L.A. to New York airfare, one way on American on a nonstop flight, was $92. Uh, That ain't bad. Uh, from San Francisco to Miami, it was 31. Uh, the cab fare was more than that. Well, the fares are now starting to go up. They're going up at about 7% a week. That's compounded. So that same fare from three weeks ago is now about $129, still a great deal, considering a year and a half ago it was 278 But remember, it's going up every single week and will continue to do so. And can we presume that the airlines will go back to their superlative service of the pre-pandemic years? I love how you say that. Uh, You know what? There were some airlines pre-pandemic, let's call it what it was, that their branding motto should have been, we're not happy until you're not happy. (laughs) I like that. We'll do everything in our power. (laughs) I know. However, uh, they got caught uh, when they didn't give refunds back. They got caught on those draconian ticket change fees. And in both those cases, they had to change their tune. That's good. So for people who want to book flights now, you can, you know, with good confidence, roll the dice and make a reservation knowing that unless you're buying the very cheapest basic economy ticket, if you have to change your ticket or your flight gets canceled, you're not going to lose your money. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we all know a few people at least who are doing that. They're looking ahead a couple months. They're, they're planning a trip. They're saying, look, well, you know, if something happens, uh, I'm going to be OK because they're still going to just credit me this back. But I feel good enough now to be able to to go and, and pay the money and, and, and save the dates. Absolutely. And by the way, this is across the board. To give you an idea of pent-up demand, yesterday, Silver Sea Cruises put on sale its 2023 World Cruise. That's a, about a 180-day cruise itinerary where the cheapest cabin on the ship, fasten your seatbelt, is $74,000. How much? And wait, it gets better. Oh. It's sold out in an hour. Really? Who are these people? Yeah, who, yeah, who has this money? Uh, listen, lo- lots of dedicated, loyal cruisers who are devoted to it, and they're coming back. Uh, wow. 180 days? Yeah. Is that what you said? Wow. Seven, 74000 bucks, huh? Minimum price. Minimum. <laughs> does, does, that, does that include cable, free cable, and Wi-Fi? <laughs> comes with HBO. <laughs> All right. Here you go. <laughs> Peter Greenberg, travel editor for uh, KNX, CBS, chief contributing editor for Michelin Travel. I guess if one of us ever disappears for, like, months at a time. That, that's where we're at. Yeah. Where do they go? What, uh, what, on the world what, cruise. You got $74,000 for the, for the ticket? I will save up for it. Coming up after this short break, the virus is running wild again in Brazil. The virus is surging in Brazil. Hospitals in most major metro areas completely overrun with COVID patients. And there are reports of hospitals running out of oxygen supplies. Three commanders of the Brazilian armed forces have even resigned in protest over the handling of the pandemic. Dr. Lee Riley, Division Head of Infectious Diseases, Vaccinology at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. He's done public health work in Brazil over the years. Doctor, uh, the problem, more people infected, the greater chance that we're going to see variants there and uh, maybe even here, right? Uh, Exactly. Yeah, this is exactly what happened. Uh, The more people uh, getting infected, uh, the greater the chance the virus will mutate uh, to create these new uh, variants. And so uh, this could easily happen in places like the U.S. if they don't uh, 
adhere to the social distancing measures, wearing masks, etc. This only happens because of increased number of transmissions. Well, this is the story of the, the Brazil variant we talk about, right? This one area got infected in the first round and people thought, OK, well, I was a few months back. They've all got antibodies. They're going to be fine. And then round two comes and it's this new variant and it, it runs right through the whole city. Exactly. Yeah. This uh, uh, In July last year, there was a huge epidemic that took place in the Manaus, which is a large city in the Amazon region. And then uh, when this variant uh, came in uh, late December, January, uh, it reinfected many of those people who had been previously infected during the last uh, big surge. And so this is really frightening because this means that, yeah, you're absolutely right, that the uh, in, uh, an infection with one strain doesn't necessarily protect against a variant. So since you, I mean, you've worked uh, over the years, as we said, uh, with the health folks in Brazil, what what is wrong then down there? What, what is going on? Is it just that, uh, is it a political issue? I, I, I mean, what's the reason why they're having such a bad infection rate and such a low rate of vaccination? Sure. No, this is all political. And I'm very saddened uh, that this is happening to Brazil because I have many, many collaborators and I've been working in Brazil for more than 25 years. And for the first time in more than 30 years, uh, in 2020, I could not go to Brazil. And uh, this is largely because of the, the leadership. You know, we ha- uh, Brazil has the, this president who never believed in, in COVID-19. He really didn't take it seriously. He made fun of the vaccines. He called them Chinese vaccines and uh, made fun of the Pfizer vaccine. And, uh, you know, that kind of leadership is exactly what creates this kind of situation. So when you talk to people there, I mean, can your colleagues still get their message out? Fine. There are people who are not happy with this president. We've seen, you know, protests against him not putting in harsher restrictions when, when a lot of people say they're needed. Um, but I guess if there's there's no lockdown, there's there's no mandate, then some people are still going to go out and just do business as usual. Right. And so, of course, my collaborators who are all involved in public health work uh, are very frustrated. But they're continuing to do do their work uh, at the grassroots level. They're doing as best as they can, given the situation. But uh, it's a very frustrating situation for them. Is it still possible to turn things around in Brazil? Or is there a tipping point when it's essentially too late? Well, so as we know from what happened in this country, it took a change of administration for things to really get going. And I think the same thing is going to have to happen in Brazil, that without the change in leadership, uh, this is going to continue to get worse. Uh, They really need to get their vaccines uh, 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 rolled out as quickly as they can. But with this kind of leadership, I think it's just going to be very difficult. What do we know about vaccine distribution there? I really don't know what's going on there. you know, they had the vaccine trials uh, using the Chinese vaccine. And, you know, it was not a, a highly effective. I mean, it was effective, but not at the level that we saw with the uh, vaccines that we have in this country. But it's a vaccine that can still be used and it's uh, easily available. I know they're negotiating right now with Pfizer to get more vaccines from the U.S. I think that 20 million doses have been promise, but I'm not sure uh, even if they got the vaccine, if they're going to be able to really roll this up because they've really, they really don't have the infrastructure uh, to really uh, ad- even administer the vaccines, even if they get the doses. Dr. Lee Riley, Division Head Infectious Diseases, Vaccinology, UC Berkeley School of Public Health. 
The mystery over rare blood clots in some people who have received the AstraZeneca vaccine might be solved. Researchers say they believe the phenomenon is similar to one that rarely occurs with a blood-thinning drug called heparin. Now, in that situation, the drug triggers the immune system to produce antibodies that activate platelets, which cause blood to clot. Drugs other than heparin can cause clotting disorders, and researchers suspect that in rare cases, the AstraZeneca vaccine may be another such trigger. This is an Odyssey original. You can find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.